Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of this show know, each and every week, a guest and I discuss the weekly parasha, the section of the five books of Moses known as Torah, which is read in synagogue throughout the world. The Jewish community is in the midst of reading from the third book of the Torah, Leviticus. And this week's Torah portion is pretty close to the middle of the scroll. In fact, some people uh, consider this to be the exact middle of the five books of Moses. The name of the portion is Kedoshim, which I'm going to not translate at this point and allow it to be part of my conversation with the guest. Kedoshin begins in Leviticus 19.1 and continues through the end of Leviticus 20. The parasha of Kedoshim begins with the statement, You shall be holy, for I, the Eternal, your God, am holy. This is followed by dozens of mitzvot, commandments, through which the followers of Adonai sanctify themselves and relate to the holiness of the divine. These mitzvot, these commandments, these laws, include a wide category, selection of categories. There is the prohibition against idolatry, the mitzvah of charity, the principle of equality before the law, Shabbat laws, sexual morality laws, honesty in business laws, um, the sacredness of life, and in fact includes the law to honor and be in awe of one's parents. Also, it is in this week's parasha that we found the find the phrase the Ahavta Larecha Kamocha. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which has uh, prominence not only in Jewish tradition, but in Christian tradition. One of the great sages of the second century, Rabbi Akiva, called this phrase, the Ahavta Larecha Kamocha, the cardinal principle of Torah. With me this morning to discuss this uh, central parasha in the life of the Jew is Rabbi Joe Klein, who was ordained in 1975 as a rabbi in the Reform Movement. He served as rabbi of congregations in Terre Haute, Indiana, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and finished his career at Temple Emmanuel of Oak Park, Michigan. He retired as Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Emmanuel in 2013. Since 2015, Rabbi Klein has served as the visiting rabbi of the Gross Point Jewish Council. He is currently adjunct faculty in the Religious Studies Program of Oakland University and Rochester University and teaches through the months of October and May in the Metro Detroit Jewish Federation's Adult Jewish Program. While in Indiana and Tennessee, he was adjunct faculty in humanities at Rose Holman Institute of Technology. 
Indiana State University and the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. It is a great joy and pleasure to invite uh, an old friend to uh, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Klein. Welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, you have the uh, privilege and the pleasure of unpacking this central portion for our listeners. Um, in the movement, reform movement, uh, this section was used on Yom Kippur morning in uh, replacing the traditional Torah reading, which focused on the sacrifices. So why don't we begin with a little history, and what's your sense of why the Reform Movement, the liberal movement of Judaism, uh, chose to place this in a central part of the Yom Kippur liturgy? Well, if on Yom Kippur uh, everyone shows up uh, in our synagogues, uh, it's it probably did not seem but uh, uh, very relevant to be talking about a sacrificial cult uh, that has been uh, out of date, unused, not used for almost 2,000 years, and replace it with something that is immediately and practically relevant uh, to folks. Uh, and if Yom Kippur is a day for atonement, a day to personally reflect on who we've been and what we need to do in the coming year, what better portion than this, uh, that indeed talks uh, about our relationships uh, with each other. So in uh, many ways, the selection of uh, this uh, portion from Torah Leviticus 19 as a replacement of sacrifices changes the entire nation, notion of what constitutes holiness. And worship. And worship. Very good. So uh, I did not translate at the beginning the word kadoshim. Um, how do you usually translate that word? Well, uh, you know, even though you said you weren't going to translate it, you did translate it in the first verse uh, as uh, holy. <clears throat> uh, kadoshim, unfortunately, is uh, almost always translated as you will be holy or holiness, kadushah, the noun. Uh, as holiness. I think it's a most unfortunate uh, translation. It reflects our Western culture, uh, but I, I think it does not reflect the intent of uh, Hebrew scriptures. Um, and, and so uh, in that sense, I find it interesting, very interesting, uh, to see how other faith systems, other religious systems, understand and define holiness and then contrasting it, if we're going to translate it as holiness, uh, at least initially, uh, contrasting it with how we understand it in our Jewish religion. So it, it seems to me the beginning question is, what does it mean that a person or a thing is holy? So that's how the Torah portion begins. Atem tihiyu kadoshim. Yeah. You shall be kadoshim. And, right. and following your lead, we'll try not to translate it um, consistently because perhaps, as you suggested, the uh, usage of the Hebrew of English holy gives a, a rather different in the implication of what the Hebrew text might have meant. Right. So, so take us through your notion of what it means to be kadosh. Well, I, I would rather start with the other, 
of what our Western culture understands holy, uh, a holy person or a holy thing is. When I ask my students, because it often comes up in class, what does it mean that a thing is holy? They usually respond, it's something that belongs to or is comes from or is touched by God. Some Something more than human, more than uh, something transcendent, but something connected to God, uh, something that is spiritually perfect or more perfect or spiritually pure, something untainted by evil or sin. Um, and so holiness becomes a description of the innate and inherent nature of an object or a person. It becomes an objective statement. It is, regardless of what you think about it, it's holy, or he is holy, or she is holy. So can you give me an example? I guess you've indicated there are three circumstances. An object can be holy, a person can be holy, and an experience can be holy. Right. So in your um, helping us um, to understand the Western notion of it, what's a holy object? Holy water, holy water in the Catholic Church, or a relic, you know, a, a bone of from St. Paul, you know, ensconced in a silver chalice, uh, you know, um, uh, that's a holy object. And uh, it's holy because, again, for our <laughs> listeners, what makes the water holy? Simply by declaration? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still H2O. Uh, but someone has declared that this is uh, uh, more than water, right? Something that is more than water. And bones are more than bones? Yeah. And how does a person, um, since we're using some of the essential images of the Catholic Church, how does a saint become holy? Uh, voted on by the Vatican. Become a saint. Yeah, you get voted on. Okay. You're voted into sainthood. Uh, are priests considered holy? I, I, you know, that's not a, it's not a question that I can answer. Okay. Uh, the priests that I know are uh, just friends of mine. So uh, um, I don't know that I can, I can properly answer that. Okay. So um, certainly um, in some traditions, there is holiness associated with individuals. Yes. And when we say Moses was holy, um, using the English, are we referring to the same dynamic as it might be in um, a more Christian or Western culture as you've identified it? You know, I don't think I've ever heard, other than what you just said, anyone ever call Moses holy. Well, the I, text I can't remember it. The text doesn't call him holy. What does no. the text call him? A man? Well, a prophet. Um, sure, at the end. Yeah, it does at the end. Yeah, right at the end of Deuteronomy. It calls him a prophet. Um, and then eventually they call him a rabbi. Uh, yeah. But I called him holy not because I think that's what the text, but certainly um, Western culture would speak about him in the same uh, manner in which they speak about other individuals who've had that kind of experience in the sacred text with God. So now I think we're going into the area of Kedusha. I think we've left holiness in the Western idea, and we've now entered into uh, uh, what I think Kedusha really means. 
uh, and uh, so that no one is held in suspense. Uh, I think the Kiddusha is meant in here in, in the text is meant to appreciate something that is set apart, that is unique, that is special because of our relationship to it. Um, uh, that um, sacrificial cult that isn't there anymore uh, enters into the realm of Kiddusha uh, because of my, of my intentional relationship with bringing an object to be offered to God. Um, so that, that Kiddusha, uh, it, it, at least in Jewish tradition, is immediately related to what one does or what one thinks or what one believes in relationship to something else. So whereas holiness takes on an objective reality, Kedushah takes on a subjective uh, quality. So our Torah portion seems to suggest by the breadth of commandments, by the breadth of behaviors, that all of life can be made Kedushah by virtue of how you respond to uh, the circumstances of your life. Yes. Rather than an objective uh, definition of it. A, a, a definition that transcends me. Correct. So, I mean, I want to read for our uh, listeners who may not be um, looking at a Hebrew Bible or um, a translation um, that it begins in a manner that might be expected um, when it says, don't turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourself. Uh, that appears to fall within what we would call the religious realm. Um, but right next to it, um, it says each of you must respect his mother and father, which doesn't on the surface seem to be a religious commandment. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor. Do not swear falsely by my name or profane the name of God. Do not uh, defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. All of those seem to be um, very different categorizations of what it means to be Kadosh. Yes. Um, what do they have in common, if anything? Uh, it, it, they have to do with how one behaves. Um, the the uh, Kedusha is specifically expressed in relationships and, and to be uh, to draw an interesting point, bringing it back to holiness. We talk about the notion in our Western culture of holy matrimony. Now, what makes matrimony holy? Well, in Jewish tradition, it's because I say when I marry my bride, uh, uh, look, you are now kiddosh or kiddushah to me. 
You are now holy to me. You are now special, unique to me, saying, you have, I now have a relationship with you that I do not and will not have with any other woman. And she says the same thing to me. So the idea of holy matrimony works perfectly with our, our understanding of the Hebrew Kedusha. Uh, the, the only thing that makes that marriage special, unique, is our relationship to each other, our unique relationship to each other. And when we break it, or if we break it, we're no, it's no longer Kedusha. So um, in the Jewish ritual, when the rings are exchanged, um, the groom says, Hooray, at, behold you in the feminine, at mikudeshet. You mm -hmm. are made kedusha to me by this ring. Um, and as you've translated it or asked our listeners to understand it better than translating it is you are separated out from all others by this ring and by my relationship by my relationship and the rules of my relationship make us holy to each other yes is that how i understand it yeah and that's kedusha and that's kedusha and in jewish tradition those rules are clearly enunciated either by our biblical text um, which speaks about obligations of men to women, or in the marriage document known as the ketubah, so that it's not ephemeral, it's not something, as the text would say, in the heavens or far from us, but it's in fact uh, tangible and measurable what constitutes a sanctified relationship. Yeah, now that's a good now that's a good and appropriate term. Sanctified relationship right. rather than holy matrimony. Um, yeah. which I suppose is what lets Judaism uh act on the notion that uh in this case a marriage can lead to divorce when the relationship is no longer sanctified by right. either party who violated the terms of sanctification, then divorce is a possibility. Sure. The marriage is sanctified by behavior, not by uh, the divine. Yes. Again, we come back to this notion of Kedusha as defined through relationships, our relationships. Um, the, the Hebrew Kedusha Kadosh uh, in our Torah portion, Kadoshim, is based on three root letters, a kuf, a dalid, and a shim, which without any vowels do sound like kadosh. Um, are there other uh, times and usages of those root letters that give our listeners a sense of what you're trying to identify for them? Well, of course, marriage is called Kedushin. Okay, so that would be one. I can't think of anything else. Well, um, I was thinking of what the blessing that we say over wine. Well, over anything. Uh, sanctifies that item at that moment. Well, you know, in almost all of our blessings, the phrase, Asher Kitshanu, the mitzvotav, 
uh, thanking God, praising God who has sanctified us. We use the word sanctified in translation, but it made us kiddush, made us special, unique through God's commandments, mitzvotah. So uh, we see the word all the time in, in uh, so many, many blessings. So in a sense, it's, uh, would you agree that when we drink wine um, for liturgical purposes and say the blessing, the same wine could be used at the dinner table, but more likely it's not considered sanctified because we haven't offered a blessing. Uh, well, the wine, is, the wine itself is never sanctified. It, is, it becomes the symbol in a wedding, before Shabbat, before a dinner, before a, a baby naming. Uh, the wine itself becomes a symbol of the sanctification that's taking place. But the wine is still wine, sweet or, or dry, white or red, grape juice or alcoholic. It, 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 its substance does not change. It is our relation. It expresses our relationship. The wine itself is never holy. The wine right. is made holy. Uh, the well, the wine, the wine represents the holiness, the sanctification of the moment. I'm not comfortable saying the wine itself is holy. That's not, that brings us too close to holy water. Okay, so the wine, the liquid, doesn't become holy. Right. Our relationship to it becomes holy. Okay, and as and as it expresses our relationship to something else, Shabbat or the holidays or a marriage. So now it's um, a triad. It's myself, the object, and either another person or God. Okay, that the that the object connects us. Right. Yes, is that what you're saying? Uh, well. It's not what I have. It's what you've said, uh, but I, I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, I want to be clear because the issue you've raised about how the term in English "holy" is used yeah. is so much a parlet part of our Western culture. But you began quite correctly saying that the Hebrew text um, doesn't lend itself to that kind of usage. And so if we're going to change what is the normative understanding, we want to be as um, clear for our listeners as possible. We don't have holy matrimony. We have kedushin. We don't have holy water. We have wine, which is blessed and never transformed into anything other than wine. Yeah. Um, and the same blessing, not the words, but the same notion um, applies to everything that we eat, technically, in yeah. Jewish tradition. Um, so none of the foods in and of themselves become holy, but we can make them connectors to holiness. Yes. You know, a, a good example of that, I would say, in every synagogue, usually hanging over the ark, which holds the Torah scrolls, is, an, is a light that's burning all the time. Now, we, we don't attach holiness to that light, but it serves as a good example. Uh, in my congregation, uh, that light was about a 15-watt bulb. 
Now, somebody could walk into the sanctuary and look at it and say, oh, that's a 15-watt bulb. Uh, somebody else could come into the sanctuary and look at it and say, well, you know, that light is always burning. It reminds us that God is always here or that our Jewish tradition encourages us to pursue light and truth, that that's what that light means. And the other person says, well, you know, it's a 15-watt bulb that you have to change periodically. So it's how we think of things that make them special. You know, I'm reminded, I want to say it's Peter Berger, the uh, 1960s, 70s uh, professor of uh, religious uh, sociology who talked about live symbols, that, um, that there were symbols like light and wine and others that could have many, many meanings. Um, and it depended on what tradition you came from. So, uh, you know, in the church, there's holy water, but in Jewish tradition, there's the mikvah. Yeah. The water itself has no special um, capacity. It's how we use it and the blessings that are associated. So one can use it before one gets married or during uh, times that mark the end of menstruation for women. But the water itself is water. Is water. Right? We don't call it, if, if anything, we call it living water because it's supposed to be unadulterated. Yeah, fresh flowing water. Fresh flowing water. Good. So I'm hoping that our listeners understand this really essential difference between Kedusha and holiness. And I want to try in the time that's left to us to refocus our attention to why the Torah portion included so many ethical behaviors in this litany of um, transformative behaviors. Do not put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Do not curse the deaf. Leave the corners of your field uh, for the poor. Um, anything that falls off the tractor, don't go back and get it. How did the Torah or the early community understand this in the context of Kedushah? You know, I think that the reason, one of the reasons that scripture in general and Torah in particular have been so important for so long is that they early on recognized that our relationship with God is parallel to our relationship with each other. That uh, unless we are righteous, uh, just, uh, fair with each other, uh, we cannot ever be in proper relationship with God. I think that that message very early on, uh, maybe earlier than any other uh, faith system, uh, was concretized in Torah, which, which only bespeaks really the magnificence of this text, that, that, that it ties it together. You know, to say that, uh, and it is probably a revolutionary statement, that holiness or kiddushah, uh is, is not a quality that is removed from us. It is not God-given. It is not God-sanctioned. It is the direct result of our intentional 
personal, proper behavior. Uh, and right in the middle of Torah, we have this uh, chapter that just lays it out. What a nice way to think about it. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Joe Klein, uh, and I want to thank him for helping us unpack our very uh, challenging Torah portion of Kadoshim. You can hear a recording uh, on the chri.ca website or download it as a podcast from iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom.